Let's turn in our Bibles to uh, Romans chapter 13, verse 8. The title of our message this morning is A Debt of Love. A Debt of Love. Romans chapter 13, verses 8 to 14. So the concept of debt, what we owe someone and our need to pay what we owe, forms the transition between our message from last week, from Romans 13, 1 to 7, to our text this week, Romans 13, 8 to 14. If you'll recall last week, Paul ended that text in verse 7, articulating God's command for Christians to pay to all what is owed to them particularly to the governing authorities. So Romans 13.7 on the screen is how we ended last week. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And now this week, Paul picks up on this theme of paying what you owe in Romans 13.8a on the screen. Owe no one anything except... Keyword, accept to love each other. This word accept is very, very important this morning for our text. It identifies the one debt we are never to pay off. And that is a debt of love. Owe no one anything except to love each other. Owe no one anything except to love each other. Do you live with a mindset that the one thing you owe everyone is to love them? Do you live with that mindset? This debt of love is the final and most important brush stroke of Paul's portrait of genuine love begun in Romans 12, 9 and 10. This portrait of genuine love really is a portrait of us, who we are. And he began it in Romans 12, 9 and 10. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. And then Paul continued painting this portrait of genuine love all the way through to the end of chapter 12. As a matter of fact, chapter 12, verses 20 and 21, he, he continues painting this portrait with these brush strokes. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him, as we just heard this gentleman willing to do. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, Paul took a break. In his painting of this portrait of genuine love, and last week, he spoke to us for seven verses on our relationship with the governing authorities, how we relate to the state. And now this week, he picks his brush back up, or should I say his pen, and he continues to paint this portrait of genuine love. Now, if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, one who trusts in Christ for your salvation, if you live every day by faith in Christ's righteousness, not your own, then this is your family portrait. This is a portrait of who we are. God is love. 
genuine love. This describes us as Christians. This is a, a mark of a true Christian. Genuine love. It's our family portrait. As a matter of fact, uh, Christmas time for the Pinos is generally the time when we take our family portraits. And so I've provided you with the latest Pino family portrait. Apologies to all the Pino, Bush, and Fernandez family. You had no idea your face would be that big on that screen this morning. But we get together once a year at Christmas to take a family portrait. Now, what's amazing about family portraits is you would think this was a beautiful, peaceful afternoon. It was not. That is the only moment there was peace with those people. Bentley Crawford literally set up his camera on a tripod and just kept clicking. He, just, he probably took about 50 or 60 pictures. This is the only millisecond when either a child wasn't screaming their head off or we're telling them to please sit down or someone is doing something. It's amazing. That really is a genuine portrait of the genuine Bush, Fernandez, and Pino families, but it's in the one moment when everybody was peaceful and smiling. You know, there's someone missing in that portrait. There's a new addition to the Bush family, little Solomon David Bush. And that reminds me of something. As Paul completed the portrait of genuine love by adding a very crucial aspect, a very crucial person, as it were, in today's text, and as this family portrait will be completed this Christmas when we take it with Solomon David Bush in it, I'm thinking there might be some of you this morning that are here and you're not part of our church family. And for some of you, you're not Christians. You're not part of God's family. You're excluded from this family portrait. First of all, thank you for coming. Secondly, my prayer this morning is that as you hear the gospel, as you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, the one who has put all of us in this portrait... Just as Solomon David Bush did not, will not put himself in that family portrait later on in December. He's put there because he came from David and Melinda, and they will be holding him. He'll be part of that portrait by their, their will, born of them. So we are part of the portrait, born of the will of God, because he brings us into the portrait. But some of you aren't in that portrait. You're not Christians. And my prayer is that through the gospel you hear this morning, you would repent and believe on Jesus Christ so that you would be included in that portrait even today. So I want to take a moment to pray for us. To pray for us before we gaze on this portrait of genuine love. That God would open our eyes to see its beauty and open our hearts to embrace its message. So let's bow our heads and pray before we read the text. Lord, I pray that you would anoint my words, that you would build your church, that you would bring forth your people, that you would add to the portrait of your family, those elect whom you have chosen, and that today would be the day of salvation for them. Whether it's here in this church, whether it's on the street, whether it's in the churches of South Florida preaching the gospel, Lord, in your sovereign plan, by your sovereign will, would you add to your family and build your church through the preaching of your word this morning. Lord, we need you. We need more than just information to populate our minds. We need your spirit to bring passion to our hearts, hope, strength. The joy of the Lord would be our strength. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. 
Now, as Paul put down his pen or his brush and took a step back from the portrait, I want you, I want you to think about what you see. Okay? So let me read it to you as Paul begins to paint the final strokes of this portrait of genuine love. Romans chapter 13, verse 8. Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. What do you see? Paul has just put his brush, I mean pen down. He stepped back from the portrait. It's complete. What do you see, my friend? I'll tell you what I see. At the very center of this portrait, I see Jesus Christ. Because when it reads that love fulfills the law, I know that Jesus is the only one who can fulfill the law. Jesus came to fulfill the very law that you and I could never fulfill. I see Him as the one who fulfilled the law. It says at the end of verse 8, look at it with me. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. You see it there? And at the end of verse 10, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Why? Because love does no wrong to one's neighbor. Jesus is the one who loved us perfectly and did the ultimate good to us, taking the penalty of our law breaking and giving us the reward of his law keeping. He did this with his perfect life, friends. Here's the gospel, dear unbeliever. He did it with his perfect life. He lived it perfectly. He did it through his sacrificial death, taking the penalty of our sin. He did it through his victorious resurrection, signaling that God received his sacrifice and our sins are forgiven if we would repent and believe. And he did it through his glorious ascension. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, sharing in the glory of the Father, interceding for you and me. He rules and he reigns. Oh, I appeal to you, unbeliever. I appeal to you, believer. Do you see Jesus in the center of this portrait. See, it's speaking of love, genuine love, and Jesus is the author of genuine love. Just as David and Melinda are the authors, so to speak, of Solomon David Bush, he was born not of his own will, but their will. So we, we have been born of the will of God. Genuine love is authored, it's minted, it's produced, it's created. By Jesus Christ. He is at the center of this portrait. Jesus defines love. 1 John 4, 10. 
1 John 4.10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation of our sins. Do you want to see genuine love? Look to the cross. Oftentimes you say, if you want to see a picture of fill-in-the-blank, intelligent, look at so-and-so. If you want to see a picture of, of, of very competent, look at so-and-so. If you want to see a picture of love, look at Jesus on the cross. He defines love. That is how we know love. So that's why I see Jesus at the center of this portrait. Do you? Do you see Jesus then as the originator, as the one from whom all this comes? The one, here's the deal, the one who originates love is the one who obligates love. The one who defines love is the one who empowers us to love one another. Point one, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. The originator of love, the one who originates it now obligates us to it. The one who first loved us now empowers us to love our neighbor. As we mentioned in the introduction, our text begins with the command to owe no one anything. Look at that in verse 8a. Except, except, except to love each other. There is a debt we never pay off. There is a never-ending debt that the one who loved us calls us to pay the rest of our lives, and that is the debt of loving our neighbor, our love toward one another. This is the debt of love God has given us, and we will spend a lifetime loving others because Christ first loved us. This is the the, the never-ending debt, the obligation of every person who's experienced Christ's love. This is the debt of love that all true disciples, followers of Christ, gladly accept. It means that we're in the photo, that we're in the portrait, placed there by God's love. He said, come on, you're in this photo. You're with us now. You're born of my will. You did nothing to get here. I brought you into this photo, but now I call you to love. This is sincere love, church. This is what Paul began to speak to us about in 12.9. Sincere love. And he went on, went on to tell us in 12.10 that we're to love one another. And then in 12.14, he says, bless those who persecute you, as we heard this morning. And in 12.17, he said, seek to do the most good to the most number of people. See, Jesus came to make us lovers. Lovers of God and lovers of self. Excuse me, others. <laughs> Jesus came to make us lovers. Lovers of God and lovers of one another. The only thing we owe anyone is to love them. Because the one who loves another has fulfilled the law, has fulfilled the commandments. Look at it. Look at verse 9. For the the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. Paul here is now quoting commandment number 7, don't commit adultery. Commandment number 6, don't murder. Commandment number 8, don't steal. Commandment number 10, don't covet. And then he just says, and any other commandment, 
are summed up in this one word. What's the one word that sums up all these commandments? And he quotes here the one word. He quotes Leviticus 19.18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And here is where I see Jesus when I see this portrait of genuine love. Why? Because the only way that Paul knew to say that Leviticus 19.18 sums up the whole law, that's a bold statement to make, over 700 laws. Paul, how can you make that statement? Paul says, because Jesus made it before me. Because Jesus, when he was on earth, and they asked him, what's the greatest commandment? Well, look at it with me. In Matthew 22.36-40, to 40, when they asked Jesus, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he, Jesus, said to him, the attorney who was asking, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. He came to make us lovers, first of God. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. And then Jesus quoted Leviticus 19, 18. You shall love the neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus made this astounding statement. Jesus made this a statement. This is the statement Paul was referring to when he's writing to the Romans in Romans chapter 13, verse 10. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets, i.e., The law and the prophets, this complicated system, oh, Jewish attorney. You know attorneys, they always want to make things very complicated. The complicated system, oh, Jewish attorney, is summed up in two things. You become a lover, lover of God and lover of your neighbor. That's how Paul knew to summarize the law in this one Word. Actually, it's several words, but it's one word. See, friends, love fulfills the law because, look at verse 10. Why does love fulfill the law? What does it say in verse 10? Because love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus is being very logical here. Paul is being very logical following Jesus' logic. You want to fulfill all the law? Then you love. You love God. You love others. You love your neighbor. Our mission statement at Palm Vista is based on this right here. It's really based on the great commandment. Our mission statement is this. Connecting people to God, love God, one another, and neighbor through Jesus Christ. Connecting people to God, one another, and neighbor through Jesus Christ. That is our mission statement. That's making a disciple. And that's what Paul is saying here. Love of your neighbor fulfills the commandment. But but what is love? What is love? It's hard for me to get my arms around that. Hey, I love you, bro. To my wife, sweetheart, I love you. I I mean, those are real words. And and when it comes to my wife, they they involve passion. I love passion. But is there more than that? Tell me, Al, what is love all about? This text tells me. You know what love is all about? Love is all about doing no wrong to your neighbor. Now let's take that and the corollary is just as true. That means love is doing the very ultimate best, the the, the best you could do for your neighbor. That's love. At its core, love seeks the highest good for our neighbor. That's why love fulfills the commandment. See, the commandment don't murder also includes then do something to bring life. Don't murder them with your words. Bring life. Don't steal from them, bless them. Don't covet, rejoice with them. Don't commit adultery, love them and help them in their marriage. All of those negatives, not doing any harm, also come with the positive. Do the greatest good to your neighbor. That fulfills the law. This this hit me. 
This, this helps me get my arm around this whole commandment to love others. And it convicts me. It convicts me because it tells me that I should live my life because of Christ including me in the portrait because I'm born of His will, not my will. Because He gives me grace instead of the judgment I deserve. Because He took my sins on the cross and gives me forgiveness through His resurrection and gives me a promise of sharing in His glory. That's all good news that I don't deserve. Because of that, He then says, Al, you've got one debt. I paid your debt to God. You've got one debt left, Al. You owe everyone to love them all the time. And this is what it looks like. Work for their best good. Work for their ultimate good, their highest good. Oh, that's not easy for me to do. I am very skilled at working for my highest good. I'm wired for that. I'm even skilled for getting you to work for my highest good. I'm great at recruiting people for that. Sadly. But now I realize I've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in my body. I no longer live for myself, but for him who died for me and rose from the dead. And so now I realize, oh Lord, help me to be more competent in what I do so that I can work for others' highest good. Help me to preach this sermon the best I can for their highest good, no matter how many hours it takes me. Help me to to counsel someone. Help me to be smart when it comes to the word of God and applying it to marriages so I can work for your highest good and your highest good and your highest good. What do you do in your life? Jesus saved you that you might work for the highest good of others, that you might love your neighbor, thus fulfilling the law. He fulfilled it for you. You're accepted by the Father. Now he says, go and love. Serve others. Al, pay attention to detail. Al, get involved. Al, listen when people are talking. Al, really think things through. Al, when someone asks you to administer an event, really try to administer it well. Even though you'd, be, you'd, be, you'd rather be watching the Gators thump Georgia. Did I mention the Gators beat Georgia yesterday? Do we live our lives so that we might bring, bring the greatest good to others? I love this John Wesley quote. I believe it captures the idea of this text. It captures the idea of why love fulfills the law because it does no wrong to a neighbor, i.e. it does the greatest good to a neighbor. John Wesley said these words, Do all the good you can. By all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as you ever can. Lord, by your grace, I want to be the best I can at this, not so I get glory, not so people say, wow, he's the best at that, so I can do the greatest good to you and you and you and you, so I could bless you. (laughs) That is a life that is rich, and it brings glory to God. This is the love. That God calls us to. This is our debt. This is our obligation. And by God's grace, I'm asking for the power by the Spirit to refocus my life. Because true confessions, church, I've slipped a little. It's not because I'm getting old. That is also true. I've gotten a little lazy. A little familiar with things. Thank God for bringing Jim Britt a year and a half ago. Or a year ago. Thank God for Corey Smidge in these 12 years. Men that love me enough to say, Al, you can do better. You can serve a little bit better. And I'm praying for that. I'm praying that for for you. 
so that we can actually work for others' greatest good. I want to love like this. Why? Point two. I want to love like this in light of Christ's coming. In light of Christ's coming. Point two. Love this way in light of Christ's coming. Paul, at the beginning of chapter 12, began a section where he wanted us to hear clearly that because of the gospel, all that had proceeded, 1 through 11, this beautiful gospel, we are now to live our lives in light of, because we see a new reality. That new reality is the gospel. That new reality is the coming of Jesus Christ And that makes a difference in how we live and for whom we live. Well, look at it with me. Romans 12, 1 and 2, just to refresh your mind. Because Romans 13, 11 to 14 is the bookend to Romans 12, 1 and 2. Romans 12, 1 and 2 begins this section. Romans 13, 11 through 14 ends this section. We'll start a new section next week where Paul is addressing a new thing. But here, Paul is concluding his command in Romans 12, 1 and 2. And this is what he said. I appeal to you, therefore. What's the therefore, therefore? Always ask yourself, Lord, what is that therefore, therefore? I'm going to tell you why it's there. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. It's based on the gospel. By the mercies of God, now because of the gospel, because of Christ's coming, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Live for God, not yourself, Al. Worship God this way. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So because Jesus has come, point two, love in light of Christ's coming, We are to do certain things. In fact, I love the way the New American Standard translates verses 11 and 12 of Romans 13 up on the screen. Do this. Do what? Love others. Love God. What we're about to see, these three imperatives that are about to be shared with us. Do this knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed The night is almost gone, and the day is here. These verses speak of a new time. That new time, the daylight, is the coming of Christ. That's why point two says, love in light of Christ's coming. And it's not only talking about his first coming, when Jesus inaugurated the new age of the Spirit Christ has come to bring the kingdom of God, but it also points to that day when Christ will come a second time and consummate the kingdom of God. As a matter of fact, when it speaks of the day has come, in verse 11, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from the sleep, for salvation is nearer to you, to us now, than when we first believed. That word salvation... Oftentimes, Paul would use that to speak of the final salvation and the final day when Jesus comes and he glorifies our bodies and he makes all things right. See, Scripture teaches salvation is threefold. We were saved, born of the Spirit of God, justified. He grabs us and brings us and holds us in the picture. 
We are being saved. We are maturing right now. We are becoming more and more like Christ. Every year those pictures will change. And Samuel's looking more and more like me. I realize that. And one day we'll be looking at a 17, 18-year-old young man. That's the being saved, the growing to be into the image of Christ. And we will be saved. One day Jesus will come back. And that glory, that picture of Jesus is what sustains us today while we're going through difficulties, what sustains our brothers and sisters in Nigeria and in different countries where they're persecuted. So we have been saved. We are being saved. We will be saved. So Paul is saying, listen, it's a new day. And in light of the fact of it's a new day, in light of the fact that Jesus has come, that Jesus will come. Now, dear Christian, I want you to look at the present in light of the future. Dear Christian, you are not only to become what you are in Christ, but what you will one day be in Christ. This is what love looks like. And he gives us three commands. Beginning in verse 12b. So then, You should ask yourself, that's so then. What's it pointing back to? It's pointing back to 12a. The night is far gone. The night of the old age of sin and darkness is gone. The new day of light is come for us. We have been born again, but there's still a, a fulfillment of that new day that's still to come. And we live in between that already and not yet. The already coming of the kingdom and the not yet consummating of the kingdom. So because of that, the day is at hand, period, middle of... Verse 12, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Verse 13, let us properly walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. And verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. What do we see here? We see three commands that are formulated in a put on, put off. Or in, the last, or in the first two, put off and put on. There's this contrast. Because Jesus has come, because you live in the day and not in the night, it's time to wake up. You sleep at night. You're living in the day. Wake up. And because Jesus has come and inaugurated his kingdom, and because Jesus will come and consummate his kingdom, there are three things now that he's commanding, commanded us in light of these realities. And here's the first one on the screen. Cast off the works of darkness. Cast off the works of darkness. These are the works of the old age, of nighttime, of the evil realm. And in their place, we are to put on the armor of light. Put on the armor of light. Weapons of light. We're delivered from the dominion of darkness. So can I say, church, take off your night clothes. There are certain clothes that people wear when they're going to go party at South Beach. We don't wear those anymore. And put on your daytime equipment. It's armor. The Christian's life is not a life of sleeping, but of battle. Of battle. Second, because Christ has come, this is what love looks like. Love, love casts off the works of darkness. Love puts on the armor of light. Second, let us walk properly. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. Again, Paul is saying, look, you are of the day. You're no longer of the night. So I want you to walk properly as in the daytime. Live as if Christ has come. Live as if, as if you live in the daytime. 
You're no longer a creature of the night. You've been delivered from darkness. And therefore, don't walk, don't walk in orgies and drunkenness. Orgies and drunkenness are done at night, primarily. Now, a particularly bad place, they may be happening during the days as well, but typically orgies and drunkenness happen at night. Sexual immorality and sensuality, nighttime activities, and quarreling and jealousy, most likely... Paul is looking ahead to what he's going to talk to them about in chapter 14 because there's quarrels and there's jealousy about matters of the law, about matters of whether we eat meat, sacrifice to idols. He's going to get to that next week. But he's saying, put off those things. Walk in the light because you are in the light. Don't walk in the darkness. See, we we see the tension, don't we, in this already, not yet. You've already been born again. You're already in the daytime. You're already in the light but you still struggle with some of these things, don't you? Now, he's talking to Christians. And when he says don't do orgies and drunkenness, there's probably orgies and drunkenness going on in the church. And what is he saying to them? That's not you. Listen, that is not you. You have been delivered from the power of sin. You've been delivered from the penalty of sin. But what this teaches us is that we're still not delivered from the presence of sin. That's the already not yet. We have been already delivered from its power and penalty, but not yet from its presence, so we still battle it. Stop having orgies, Christians, in Rome. But rather walk, live in the daylight. And finally, to highlight this battle with the flesh, verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh. This is the sarks. This is the presence of sin. Not the power of sin. That's been broken. Not the penalty of sin. That's been covered by Jesus' blood. But the penalty of sin. But the presence of sin. The flesh. And so he's saying, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now what does that mean, Al? I thought you said I'm already in Christ. You are. I thought you said that God has placed me in Christ sovereignly. He has. That is already true, already true, but it's not yet fully true. So there are some days, though you're in Christ, that you act as if you're in the devil. So by God's grace, remember, we have been saved, we are being saved. This is the being saved phase. Put on Christ. You don't have to gratify that desire of the flesh because you are in Christ. But now be who you are in Christ. See, Christ is the central figure here. Christ has come to deliver us. Our old man is dead in Christ. We are new creations in Christ. All these things are true. Now be who you are. Do you see the vision? It's a vision of Christ's glory, dear church. It's a vision of Christ's glory that we taste here. We have just a taste of it. We see it. We feel it when we're worshiping. We sense it when we're fellowship. When we have harmony in our homes and with our children... Oh, this is glorious. And then in a moment it can be broken by a conflict, by a problem, by a fleshly desire. We can be madly in love with our wives, men, and suddenly be lusting after a woman who's walking down the street. And it can happen like that. And rather than be discouraged by it, God says, look at the portrait. Don't get your eyes off the portrait. Look at Jesus. Look at his power. Look at his resurrection. And I says, look at his glory. He's coming back. You've tasted it. You will have it in full. And based upon that, let it fuel your hope with resurrection power. 
So that you could do what? And here's the main point of the entire message on the screen. So that you can love one another in light of Christ coming. You can love one another in light of Christ coming. I can become a man who starts working for your greatest good. Even if at times that means I have to sacrifice. I do it gladly. Because no one sacrificed as much as Jesus did to work our greatest good on the cross. I'm a new creation. Church, based on the hope and the vision of Christ's glory, let us love one another in light of Christ's coming. Let us bow our heads and pray. Worship team, would you join me here? Father, if there is someone here today that would not know you, but someone who is intrigued by this idea of what you've done, Jesus, someone who says no one has ever worked for my greatest good, Any good I have, I've earned it myself. Any good I have, I've fought and scratched and clawed for it myself. Are you telling me, Al, that someone worked for my ultimate good, an amazing thing who would actually die for my sins? And that someone rose from the dead, and that someone is ascended into heaven, and that someone is Jesus Christ, and you're telling me he's God in the flesh? Lord, I pray that you would even now give that person repentance and faith. Draw their heart to you, young or old. And Lord God, for the rest of us who struggle at times with the flesh, who walk as if we were at, in the nighttime, who put our night clothes on far too often and sneak out the back door when we think no one's looking, for some of us who are, who are sleeping who are sad, who lack faith. Lord, like myself, who've just become lazy and selfish and stopped working for others' greatest good. Suddenly made life about me and my good. Lord, grant us the grace to repent as we look at the face of Jesus. You are smiling upon us, Father, in Christ. You bid us come, Father, and love our neighbor. You bid us to love in light of Christ's coming, both past tense, present tense, and future tense. Jesus, you dominate this portrait of genuine love. And we so need your love. We so need your love. Help us. Help us. Let's stand together and let's sing this song as a prayer to God. Let's ask God to reign in us as a church. Let's confess to God our need for His grace. Our need for His mercy.